My father has this personality quirk that drives me crazy. Whenever and wherever he travels, no matter how far, he refuses to reset his watch to the local time. For him, it's always whatever time it is in Cincinnati, Ohio, even if all the clocks around him flash the fact that it isn't. Even if he's taking my mother, for example, on their once-in-a-lifetime dream vacation to Hawaii and the sun is setting in perfect postcard colors. No wonder I'm sleepy, he'll say, glancing at his watch. It's two in the morning. I don't know why it drives me so crazy. Maybe it's his small refusal to accept where he is at that moment. Or maybe it's his small insistence that, at any moment, he's always home. I just know that, with a wristwatch and a strong will, my father has decided to ignore the laws of time. It turns out that he's not so different from most of us who fly frequently from one time zone to another. In his new book, Jet Lag, Chris Lee illuminates what happens to us when, thousands of feet in the air, trapped in an uncomfortable seat in coach, or luxuriously sprawled out in first class, we race ahead of the clock or fall behind it. Suddenly the sun shines when it shouldn't, where the night comes too soon, and we're out of sync, not only with time, but, it can seem, with the world around us, even with ourselves. We're jet-lagged, and, as Lee cleverly shows, we're experiencing much more than an inconvenience. We're experiencing something like modernity itself, where time, technology, and our global condition are not only made evident, but also, as we stagger off our flights, exhausting. Chris Lee, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It is great to have you on the show. You are the author of Jet Lag. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it immediately gets uh, a rile out of people. Nobody is indifferent to jet lag, which I think is one of the virtues of the book. It's definitely... Uh... It definitely gets one's attention. So, so I do have a question to start you off with. Imagine, let's do a hypothetical. Imagine that somebody has downloaded this podcast to pass the time from a flight, oh, from New York on the way to to London or or to Cairo or something like that, right? And and they they want to kill forty five minutes. They thought that this would be the perfect thing to listen to because they're about to experience it. What would you want them to start thinking about? Gosh. Um... That, that that's a huge question in many ways. I don't know if a podcast, at least this podcast, even though it's on jet lag, might be the best thing to listen to. Um, and what I mean by that is, I don't know, when I get off, you know, a plane or if I'm recovering from a long jet flat jet flight, I like to, you know, listen to music or, um, you know, do something that doesn't require a lot of intellectual energy. So, um, yeah. Whereas, you know, with this book, I actually try to add intellectual content to the experience of jet lag. Yeah. So you you mentioned that there are all these guides out there about how to beat jet lag or the science of jet lag, but you're not interested in doing that. So so what is it you're interested in doing? Yeah, I'm not interested in that at all. I should say that at the outset. This is definitely not a self-help book. Um, at least a conventional self-help book. I mean, it's it's designed to, you know basically have readers think about jet lag in a new way. And so um, I approach it through a cultural studies mode. And, um, you know, that's not to say that there isn't science and and some discussion of, uh, you know, ways to recover from jet lag and so forth. But the, the main point of the book is to think about jet lag, not just as 
not just as jet lag in and of itself, but also to think about it as symptomatic of um, broader conditions of globalization, the acceleration of modern life, um, our relationship to technology. So it's it's I see jet lag as a way of you know getting at all these things at once. So it's it's an eccentric book, and you know I, I should say too I I uh, try to make it funny though my sense of humor is sometimes dark and um not too dark but you know it, it it's subtle um but it's it's the kind of book that you know i asked this question at the start that's both serious and um an attempt at humor about you know is there a philosophy to jet lag can we think about you know the experience of jet lag um that is to say our our biological clocks being out of joint with our surroundings um, even though that's often temporary, does that tell us something about what it means to be modern? And once again, our relationship to time, our relationship to technology, and uh, you know, we see we we see extensions of jet lag in different ways. What I mean by that is, you know, people talk about social jet lag or cultural jet lag. Um, there's a there's another um, writer who's a former pilot. He talks about place lag. That is to say, we go someplace and we still feel the effects of the place we started out from. So the point being that, you know, there are all these um, ways in which I think in modern life and present day life that talk about or, or speak to these moments of disjuncture um, at times enabled through technology like getting on a plane and flying somewhere far away, but also, you know, moments of disjuncture, for example, with how, you know, we rely on our <clears throat> iPads and iPhones so much that we stay up late at night. Um, we, you know, lose touch with um, celestial time and pay more attention to, you know, quote unquote mechanical time. And so there are all these things, there are all these ways in which technology disrupts our, biological clocks and our, you know, ordinary rhythms. And I think that kind of disruption um, can be traced back to jet lag. So there, I just said a lot. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, the point is, is that the book, I mean, just, just to tie this up uh, for the moment. I mean, this is what fascinates me about jet lag is that when I started writing this book, you know, I wasn't quite sure where it would take me so to speak. Um, <laughs> this book about jet lag, this book about travel, I wasn't sure where I'd arrive at. But, um, you know, one of the things about doing this book is that it, it did open up this world of time, technology, and the human body. And if anything, I found that I had a lot more to say, um, that I sort of had to um, let some things go and, and not include them in the book, simply because the book series itself has a certain word limit. And I just couldn't, say everything I wanted to say. But but again, the point being that I had a lot to say about those. So let's jump in with time, right? The the, the poor soul who might be on the flight uh, might be thinking, oh, I'm going to gain a few hours, I'm going to lose a few hours, or it's, it's going to be night and it should be day or day and it should be night. Um, what is that beyond I'm out of sync? I've just got to catch up. I got to, I got to catch up. I got to push through. You mean, how do we think about time or? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just kind of curious, you know, oh, I have to set my watch back a little bit. Um, right. That's, 
a kind of functional notion of time um, that that I think keys into the experience of modernity and and really what it means to be on that flight. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as I mean, this is opening up, you know, a huge question and conversation. Um, but this is something I touch upon in the introduction. I have a couple of, you know, quips that I make in the beginning. Like I say, to be modern is to know what time it is. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you read a lot of um, novels in the modernist tradition, um, if you read somebody like T.S. Eliot, um, in fact, I begin the book with the uh, with lines from his, <clears throat> excuse me, his uh, poem Burton Norton from Four Quartets that, you know, was first published in the 1930s, so well before jet lag, which was diagnosed in the 1950s. But nonetheless, I start with T.S. Eliot because, um, you know, his meditation on time um, in Burton Norton um, speaks to how, um you know, time and concern for time and a consciousness of time, I think, is a very modern thing, a very modern experience. And, you know, they're novels by Virginia Woolf and um, William Faulkner and um, James Joyce that also deal with issues of time, you know, like the single day, the epic of the single day. And so anyway, the I, I start the book, you know, thinking about that and sort of saying that, that jet lag is part of this broader landscape, um, part of this broader set of concerns about time that we see during the modern period that we see actually, and again, I talk about this in the book, going back to the late 18th century and, you know, the revolutions of, of France, um, the United States and, and Haiti are all about, you know, starting this new modern period. And, you know, with that, it's not just the start of modernity, so to speak, but also the start of modern electoral cycles, um, term limits. There's a new notion of political time. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of digressing here, but but the point is that, um, again, I try to use jet lag. I try to situate jet lag within this broader landscape, um, cultural and political landscape, historical landscape that involves concerns about time. But then I, I go from there to, you know, um, sort of if that's if that's the case, then to think about, well, how does jet lag fit into a philosophical tradition? Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, time has always been a subject of, of philosophy. And when I say philosophy, I mean, you know, going back to, you know, ancient philosophy, um, uh, St. Augustine was concerned about time and eternity, um, jumping to the 19th century, you know, Marx and Hegel are concerned about time. Of course, they're dealing with, you know, questions of modernity. Um, but then also um, Bergson, Heidegger, um, and, and uh, Sartre and other 20th century uh, philosophers, you know, are also dealing with questions of time. And some of them, you know, like... Um, Levinas, uh, you know, he talks about time in his work, but in a somewhat facetious way, at least to me, it's sort of a, there's sort of a dark sense of humor there too, where he talks about insomnia as being, you know, a, you know, the ultimate state of being conscious. So, you know, you know, I think he's being serious there, but also, you know, you know, tongue in cheek as well. So, anyway, the point being, um, you know, with all these philosophers from the 
you know, from the ancient period to the present, you know, raising this question of what is time and its relationship to consciousness and being, um, you know, how does jet lag fit into that? So in that instance, I'm also being, um, you know, serious, but tongue in cheek as well. Um, but, you know, to pick up, you know, just to, to go in a slightly different direction, I realize I'm talking a lot again, but, um, to, you know, to pick up on your question as well, you know, I, another quip I have in the introduction, I say that, that jet lag is time travel without the charisma. And I mean, I thought that was funny, but who knows, you know, um, anyway, the point being that, um, you know, I think jet lag is, is, you know, it's a kind of time travel. Um, and maybe we don't think of it that way because when we, you know, uh, when we land, we don't think, oh, wow, that was so awesome. In fact, we often land and think, gosh, get me to a hotel. I need to take a shower. I need to crash. I need a drink, whatever. And, um, but, you know, when you travel from New York to London or God help you, you know, go from New York to Singapore or something, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're going across time zones, you end up in a different time and place. And so there's that experience of traveling forward or backward in time. And I think that jet lag in that sense, you know, sort of denaturalizes or, um, demythologizes the, you know, fantastical quality of, of time travel. That is to say that, um, you know, jet lag or excuse me, time travel in literature, whether it's HG Wells or, um, you know, examples in film like back to the future or, um, the Terminator, you know, these examples of time travel are often, you know, seen as, you know, miracles. They're fantastical and so forth. Whereas jet lag is just ordinary. Um, in fact, another line in the book, I say that, um, you know, time travel is about correction or excuse me. Um, gosh, now I can't even remember what I wrote. Um, let me just correct that quickly because I have it in front of me, but time travel is about, um, I just, I just want to get this one line. <laughs> yeah. Most people think authors know their, or that, yeah, that authors know their books forwards and backwards. And I've had people come up quote passages and I'm like, who's that from? Who, who wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, uh, you're a writer as well. I mean, something it's funny about, let me just have a slight um, tangent about writing. It's funny for me when I write something, you know, there's, it's such an intense experience, especially, you know, as you get to the end and you're correcting proofs and all that. And then, you know, you, you remember your book, like at a microscopic level for like maybe, a you know, one month to six weeks, and then I find there's like, you know, what I imagine to be similar to a postpartum depression. You just sort of move away from the project. And I forget like what I said in a book. Um, anyway, that's just part of being a writer, I guess. But the the line that I wanted to, to read um, is, I'm just reading directly from my book. I, I say, time travel is traditionally about repair. Jet lag is about disrepair. So what I mean by that is that, you know, in works of fiction, time travel is about, you know, repairing something like we go back into the past, like in Back to the Future, you know, going back into the past to prevent something from happening or, and that's also the case in the, uh, you know, the Terminator, mm -hmm. um, the film I like more, which, you know, I'm a sci-fi buff, but, um, you know, just the way in which, 
you know, through those films, you have time travel being used to sort of protect or ensure a certain outcome. Um, so it's about repairing something. Whereas jet lag, what I mean by jet lag being a kind of disrepair is that it's that, that disjuncture between, um, what time our bodies think it is versus the actual time of the place that we arrive at. So anyway, I've just said a lot again. Well, that's why we're here, which is great. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so there's this sort of notion of of natural time or the, the rhythms of day and night that the human body is supposed to be synced to. And one of the facets of modernity is that that gets out of joint, made mechanized. We can suddenly beat time, get ahead of it, fall behind it. Um, it's measured in a different way. And uh and so, you know, the dream that you're talking about of, of time travel is the body is is transported whole and refreshed and ready to go into a different place. And, you know, when you, you wake up after that long flight, you are hurting, um, you know, you're dehydrated or constipated or God knows what has happened to you in that time travel. So so what does um, what does jet lag bring into relief about about being embodied humans? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think. I think it, you know, points to our human limitations. Um, I mean, that this is in fact where I, you know, I try to, you know, I said at the start, this isn't a self-help book. Um, I would even go so far that this book is kind of against many self-help books. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I think jet lag reminds us of our human biology and the need to respect it. Um, you know, we, you know, technology, technological innovation isn't going to save us, you know, from, you know, certain limits that we have that are genetic, that are part of who we are as a species. Um, now that's not to say that there aren't efforts to, you know, sort of improve the human, um, species and, you know, find ways of circumventing our biological limits, um, you know, certainly there are a number of the, you know, something that's fascinating that I wasn't able to, you know, fully encompass in this book is this, all the sleep research that's going on at the moment. Um, there's a lot of work, you know, trying to understand sleep as a, as a human condition and, um, and, you know, depending on your perspective, you know, some of the more nefarious, ways of going about sleep research is to see how we can adjust the human body such that people can stay awake longer. Um, and I say nefarious in part because um, there's another scholar, uh, much more important and senior to me, um, named Jonathan Crary, who actually teaches art history at Columbia. Um, he wrote a book called 24-7 that um, – some of your listeners might know about. Um, and I should say Jonathan was very generous in endorsing my book with the blurb. But but uh, Jonathan Crary talks about how the U.S. military, for example, has done work on um, how to create, you know, quote-unquote super soldiers who will be able to stay awake for long periods of time. Um, he also talks about how, you know, keeping – uh, detainees, for example, at Guantanamo, um, you know, keeping them awake as a way of, as a kind of, um, 
uh, as a method of torture. So the point being that there are all these sorts of ways in which sleep has been manipulated and is being studied in this way. Certainly, there are you know a lot of other researchers who are you know looking at you know sleep as a subject in you know many positive ways. You know, people who suffer from um, sleep disorders and um, you know insomnia and things like this. You know, trying to find ways to correct that. And of course, you have sleep researchers also working on jet lag, you know, how to mitigate the effects of jet lag and, um, you know, things, one method, and I talk about this briefly in my book, um, one common method is to be exposed to flashing lights um, uh, prior to and after your arrival. And the, the, this experience of flashing lights helps your body adjusts to adjust more quickly to the new time zone that, that you've landed in. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, to circle back to, um, you know, the, you know, the issue of self-help. I mean, you know, certainly I, I, you know, like anyone, I don't want jet lag to last longer than it has to. Um, but on the other hand, I think in experiencing jet lag, you also recognize that there are limits to technological innovation. And I think that's a really important lesson today. We keep placing our hopes that technology will solve everything, and that might not always be the case. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there's... So, so this might be an impossible question, but I kind of, I kind of like it. So there's something sort of deeply troubling about imagining the body as something that needs to be overcome, imagining time as something that needs to be overcome, imagining space as something that needs to be overcome, that they're all problems that we need to figure out ways to get beyond. What's the ontology of that desire? What's the nature of it? Like, you know, you could imagine a different world in which, we need to resync, right? In fact, there are plenty of cultural movements to, that want to do that, right? Get back in touch with nature. Get back in touch with your natural rhythms. Get back in touch with the way that human beings are supposed to live. Yeah. I mean, well, let me say a few things. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, I'm not anti-technology. I mean, I think that, you know, technology obviously helps us in numerous ways. And, of course, scientific research is incredibly valuable, um, so this isn't anti-science. It's not anti-technology. It's not in a weird way a back to the earth kind of book. Um, but I do think, you know, uh, you know, I'm a humanist, I should say, I, you know, my, my background is in, um, history. I have a PhD in history, um, that, you know, I do think, you know, it's important to, you know, have a sense of balance. The, the, you know, the, I will say too that it's not, at least to me, it's not in the foreground, but I think a careful reader of my book will also grasp the political message of the book. Um, there is a political message in this book, actually. Um, and the, the message is basically about, you know, global capitalism. I think that, you know, in the global capitalist system that we live in, that, you know, there are these constant demands for, you know, labor productivity, um, you know, working late hours, um, working on the weekends, um, you know, doing things faster. You know, the Internet has, you know, been great 
um, in many ways in terms of communication and exchange of information, et cetera. But it's also, you know, placed a lot of demands um, on our work life. You know, it's a good example of how, you know, technology has been beneficial, but also perhaps um, eroded, you know, the leisure time we have in our lives. And, and it's even affecting, you know, the number of hours of sleep we might be able to get at night. So, you know, I chalk it up to, you know, global capitalism and sort of the demands it places on us. Um, so, you know, if there's a villain in my book, it's that. And I try to, you know, get, you know, and again, it's not like a, it's not like a manifesto or, you know, trying to get people against global capitalism or anything, because, you know, global capitalism can also be a good thing in some ways. But it is trying to, you know, bring attention to this, that, you know, this acceleration that we're experiencing. Um, and, you know, I'm not the first to talk about this, you know, not only Jonathan Crary, but, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, journalists and, and increasingly scholars who talk about, ex- quote unquote, accelerationism, which is basically, a, you know, kind of a jargony word for talking about, you know, just how the world is, you know, just moving faster, the demands are increased, you know, the expectations for, you know, out work output and and higher consumption are just happening faster, and um, they're different. Without getting too academic, we could talk about it further if you like. But without getting too academic, you know, there are different approaches to this phenomenon, um, and you know whether it's a positive, whether it's a negative, and basically in this book, I you know I critique it and say that. You know, it's eroding something as basic as the hours of sleep we get. And I think that will have, you know, very negative effects, not just in terms of, um, you know, our exhaustion levels, but that in turn affecting our physiology. So, so through jet lag, we get anyway. something like an intimate physical experience of global capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, the basic point is that, you know, <laughs> I realize, you know, but this is a good example of the book, you know, again, using jet lag as a way of getting at these larger issues. So the point being that jet lag is, um, you know, it's kind of microcosm, I think, of this broader predicament or problem of acceleration in our lives today. Well, let me ask you an historical question then, given that that's your training. Um, so, so take us back to the moment where human beings decide to name this phenomenon. What, what are the historical conditions out of which we suddenly get this, this term, right, which is a fusion of other terms? Yeah, so the term jet lag is a portmanteau expression combining two expressions, jet set and time lag. And basically, um, the term itself started to be used in the mid 1960s. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a term that came from some profound thinker. Um, it just started being used during this period. Um, there's a there is one um, article in the Los Angeles Times that that apparently is seen, or you know, by some scholars, has been seen as the the starting point. Um, for the use of jet lag and um, as an expression. But it's important to say that that jet lag existed prior to that. Um, You have studies um, as early as the 1950s, you know, sort of, so a decade earlier, you know, looking at jet lag. Um, 
There's also this um, fascinating um, essay by Roland Barthes um, in his book, Mythologies. Um, it, the essay is called The Jet Man, and he's sort of focused on the pilot um, and the jet man, quote unquote, as a, as a certain kind of modern figure and a kind of um, uh, modern hero. And anyway, the, his essay, you know, talks about different things, but he does talk about this sort of discombobulation that you can experience when flying. And um, effectively, what he's talking about is jet lag. Um, so, you know, there, there are also these, and this is something I get in the book too, you know, you, if you read, if you, if you read, if you read, there's certain ways in which jet lag was talked about before jet lag was actually coined as an expression. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, but again, this is something that one of the reasons that it sort of fascinates me as a, as a scholar is that, um, you know, jet lag is one of these things that that emerged, um, you know, during this period of the post second world war period where, um, jet travel just became more common. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, I should say quickly that obviously, um, jet aircraft weren't in operation, weren't invented until, um, uh, until during the second world war. So jet travel, you know, wasn't possible until after the second world war. And, and so, but you have, with the commercialization of jet travel, you start to, you know, more people experiencing this phenomenon of jet lag. So by the 1960s, about a, you know, a decade after, you know, commercial jet travel starts, uh, starts developing, that's when you have people, you know, experiencing this broader phenomenon of jet lag. So it's something that, you know, is relatively recent, um, but you know, as I, as I talk about in the book, I, I link it up to other things. Um, not only the acceleration in the present, but I also, um, in the second chapter of the book, I, I talk about um, the history of aviation and how, if you look at the history of aviation, uh, you know, there are also these, these feelings of dread, these feelings of discomfort, um, feelings of exhaustion that preceded um, the jet age. So, you know, I also position jet lag against these other sets of feelings, um, nausea, um, you know, these sorts of things that, that existed during the early period of, of commercial travel through with propeller planes. And I even talk about, um, you know, traveling by, you know, balloon. I don't know if it's, I mean, not that it was that common or anything, but you know, it's what, what was the what was the jet lag equivalent of traveling by balloon? Well, it's funny, yeah, I mean, balloon sloth. Well, I mean, there's not. I mean, it, it's not like there was an equivalent, but I will say that you know, if you're in a balloon, uh, you know, a thousand feet in the air, um, you know, there's a kind of feeling of uneasiness and dread and discomfort. And fear, um, and so reptilian you know, panic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and in fact, there's this. You know, I, I should say this book. You know, just just to promote it, there are a lot of illustrations in the book, which is also kind of a joke because it's a joke about jet lag. You wouldn't assume there would be any illustrations, but in fact, um, 
I have a lot. And anyway, the point being that I have illustrations of, you know, sort of balloons and images of balloon travel. And the point being that, um, you know, traveling by balloon also, you know, stirred up different kinds of affect and emotions. And um, so jet lag with its exhaustion, with its nausea at times, with its discomfort, wasn't the first feeling of discomfort from air travel. There's a history of discomfort. <laughs> so, anyway. Chris, I'm gonna I'm gonna invite you to speculate to to project in the future against your historical training. Um, so we're on we're on the edge of privatized spaceflight. Yes, joy. So <laughs> what's, what's coming down the line at us? What what are human beings going to be talking about that have have been up and come down? In terms of, I, I guess I'm thinking about the jet lag now in a, a series of historical experiences from the balloon um, to the propeller plane to the jet. And now we're looking at something that would, would be outside of the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, well, let me say a few things um, and in all seriousness. I mean, I, you know, I think there, is, there in fact was an article about this in the New York Times um, after the book came out after my book came out. Um, but um, nonetheless, something I try to point to in the book, you know, we sort of romanticize jet travel in the past um, because jet travel today is often, you know, very cramped and you hear all these, well, I mean, you know, I don't really have to say much. There are all these stories, you know, about um, flights being overbooked and, you know, that episode last summer of, you know, somebody being, you know, being dragged off the plane and, um, you know, just the way in which these, you know, today's airlines are very, um, profit oriented and, um, you know, unconcerned with the comfort of passengers. I think, you know, I think a lot of that's true. I don't disagree with that. I, you know, I, and maybe I should say that, that I, I love to travel, but I totally get, um, all the discomfort, you know, I travel coach, I, you know, I'm not a, you know, I think I've traveled first class maybe a handful of times and purely by luck. Um, but having said that, you know, it's not as if air travel was better, um, you know, prior to this period. I mean, I, you know, you, I mean, certainly during the propeller era, you had, you know, cabins that weren't, um, you know, uh, you know, weren't, well insulated, could be very cold, could be, um, you know, and flying at a lower altitude, you know, with greater turbulence. Um, it should be said that, you know, during the 60s and 70s, you know, people could smoke on board. In fact, I remember that. Um, I've been traveling, you know, I, I traveled, uh, it's something I talk about in the book, I traveled at quite a young age. And I remember, you know, there being smoking sections on a plane. And I mean, literally, there's nothing dividing the smoking section from the non-smoking. So, you know, the point being, you know, I mean, there are other kinds of discomfort. Um, so, you know, having said all that, I mean, I, I think that, gosh, you know, certainly things like jet lag, um, I think airlines are attentive to. And, um, you know, you have airlines like, I, I took a, uh, a Virgin Atlantic flight once and recently, and they had, you know, sort of a shifting light. I'm sure some of your listeners have experienced this, you know, sort of shifting light patterns in the cabin that are designed to relax and adjust people to a new time zone. Um, there are things like that, that, 
airlines are experiencing or experimenting with. So along yoga routines. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I guess my hope is that, you know, there's a, there'll be a positive trend with that. And yeah, I mean, Elon Musk, gosh, I hope he finds ways of making space travel comfortable. I mean, I think he'd have to, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's space travel. That's pretty serious. You have to do, you have to have some amenities. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we should underestimate the ways in which corporations seek to, you know, profit from passengers and, you know, not give away too much. So I think it's up to passengers to make, you know, demands. I think, you know, um, you know, keep criticism alive and, you know, that kind of thing. I see. I see an interaction in the future. Uh, well, so so let me ask this question. Um, all right. Uh, before we get away from, uh, well, you know, actually, the, the, that was that was really good. I was just sort of curious about your own experience of of bringing you to this topic, right? And you mentioned it a little bit, and um, you know, you don't really think of you know an historian taking up a phenomenon like jet lag. Um, probably most of us out there think of you in archives, um, you know, not, a, not getting bumped to business class and feeling really excited. So, so what brought you to this? Yeah. I mean, yeah, let me say this. I mean, if you had asked me, you know, a few years ago, <laughs> do you imagine writing a book on jet lag? I would have laughed. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, this hasn't been a huge ambition of mine, I have to admit. Um, but having said that, you know, I have traveled a lot. Um, again, as I mentioned from an early age, and in fact, in one of the chapters of the book, I raise this question of whether there's a jet lag generation, that is to say, uh, you know, a, a generation of, of people around my age who were the ex- first to experience jet lag as an ordinary experience. And if that means something, but to get to the, to the, you know, the origins of the book itself, this was in the fall of 2014. I saw an ad on the webpage of the Los Angeles Review of Books um, mentioning this series with Bloomsbury um, called Object Lessons. And it was being edited by these two scholars, Christopher Schaberg, who is, uh, has a PhD in comparative literature, um, and then Ian Bogost, who's done a lot of um, work on I think his PhD might also be in comparative literature, but he, he does a lot of work on games and um, that is video games and, 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 you know, technology and, and that kind of thing. So anyway, they're the series editors um, of this, of, 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 of the book series that jet lag appears in. So anyway, so I saw this ad, um, I clicked on the ad and it took me to a submission page and I just thought it was a cool series. And the first thing that popped into my head was jet lag. <laughs> um, and I should say, I, you know, it's like playing that surrealist parlor game, Exquisite Corpse, where you just sort of let whatever pops into your head, you, you use whatever you put it down. So, um, so yeah, I, jet lag was something that immediately came to mind. I filled out the form you know, it was electronic, submitted it without expecting any kind of response. I didn't put a lot of effort into it because I didn't think I'd get a response. And yet I did get a response. 
Um, and so that was in the fall of 2014. It took about a year to, um, you know, just sort of back and forth and some periods of not hearing anything. And then I finally um, got the contract in December 15, de- December 2015. So it just stated for a while. And to be quite honest, I didn't, I, I took some notes, but I didn't really write anything beyond the proposal. So from December 2015 until, until about January 2017, so, you know, 12 month period, that's when I really, you know, set to work and, and wrote the book. Um, in part because, you know, I just felt like if I, you know, if this didn't work out, I'd have this half-baked manuscript on jet lag that nobody would want to publish. So I, I just didn't want to put a lot of effort into it until everything was sort of locked down. I'm going to go ahead and let listeners know that the book is very well done in case the opposite impression is coming across. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I mean, yeah, no, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I really yeah. appreciate that. I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean, I should stress that, yeah, I mean, I... Once I started, I really got, as I mentioned at the start of the interview, I really got into it. Um, and I should say, too, that, you know, even though, or did you want to say something? Well, I, I did want to say that you end with with something positive to say about jet lag, right? That there's there's oh, an yeah. upside, curiously, to Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let me, well, let me just say quickly, you know, so just for your, the sake of your listeners, I mean, uh, you know, my PhD is in history. Um, in fact, I've it's in African history, <laughs> which doesn't you know, immediately lend itself to, um, you know, doing a book on jet lag, but I, but I've published four previous books. So, um, on different things. And, um, so, you know, this wasn't like the first book I ever wrote and I had a sense of, um, you know, how this book would be structured and, um, so on and so forth. And I, I, uh, but but as I you know mentioned also at the beginning, I mean it's a, this book is also very much about globalization, and so um, you know that's something I felt very comfortable engaging with, and you know thinking about jet lag in that way. So it looks so you know on the surface jet lag is very different from my other books, but at the same time. I think a close reader, not that there's anyone in the world who's read all my books, but I think a close, if somebody <laughs> besides myself, but if somebody were to do that, I think they would, they would note, you know, connections. And what I mean by that is I, I have this ongoing interest in not only globalization, but issues of time and, you know, the experience of time. And, you know, I, maybe that's a pretty natural thing as a historian, but you know, there are some continuities between this book and, and my previous work. So when I did set to work on this, that it, it, it did give me a way of continuing some questions that I think have defined my my intellectual life, my research career, but also doing it in this, you know, totally new way. And it was really a joy to write. I loved writing this book. Um, not many people say they love writing books, but I mean, I, it was just so much fun. And like I said, you know, earlier, I, there was so much more I had to say. And I, and, and, you know, to pick up on your comment, um, just a few minutes ago, the, you know, I, I did, this book does end on a positive note. You know, I didn't want to just write another dreary, you know, criticism of, you know, the airline industry or another sort of dreary meditation on, on you know the 
limits of modern life and you know jet lag is an example of that i i mean I, I do talk about that i think you know you can't be pollyannish or quixotic about it but on the other hand i wanted to you know give a sense that you know okay if you experience jet lag it sucks but you know if you're awake at 3 a.m you know maybe you can think about your life and you know do something about it <laughs> maybe that's also kind of lame but the the point being that you know i, I think that that jet lag maybe can be seen as an opportunity and, and, um, you know, an opportunity for reflection. And, uh, yeah, I should say along the way too, you know, I, in this book, um, you know, I talk about, you know, the work of a number of artists like Salvador Dali, um, uh, Paul Clay. Um, I talk about movies like Lost in Translation, uh, Francis Ha, with Greta Gerwig, um, Solaris, Alien, uh, Up in the Air. So I, you know, I, I have all these cultural references to, you know, enliven the text and and you know talk about jet lag in different ways. the The logic of the book is very associative as opposed to a typical academic argument that's, you know, lockstep heading towards some, you know, conclusion. Yeah, I think it's it's as you mentioned in the book itself, it's essayistic and uh very much so. The early essayists when they emerged, they distinguished themselves from scholars by claiming that they just paid attention to the good stuff. And I think that's what happens here. <laughs> well, what are you working on next, Chris? Where where is this leading you? It's a great question. Um I mean, in truth, I, I have some other projects um that are more related to my field of specialization, I have, um, uh, it might sound random in relation to jet lag. I've, I've been doing a lot of work on this South African, uh, writer and activist named Alex Laguma. Um, he was an anti-apartheid activist. Um, and he had this really interesting life and he died in exile in Cuba, um, in 1985. And I'm putting together a collection of his uh, essays and writings. It's actually quite a big project. It's about 130,000 words. Um, I'm almost, yeah, it's it's very big. I'm almost done with that. Um, I am also uh, working on sort of a teaching book, a reader on racial thought um, in Africa. So it's, it's also, um, you know, speaking closely to my other research interests and, you know, looking at the work of people like um, Chinua Achebe and Willy Shoenka and Nuruddin Farah and others. Um, but connected to jet lag, you know, it, 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 I haven't, um, you know, fully departed, so to speak, from from that interest. And I, in, in working on this book, not only did it, you know, provide me with a, you know, a new way of thinking about um, modernity and globalization and time. But I was also thinking a lot about travel writing and how travel writing is, you know, often very cliched, um, you know, about the innocent going abroad and having an epiphany and, and so, some sort of quote unquote exotic culture and then returning. Um I'm not the first to make that critique, but I've been thinking about doing something in relation to travel writing. Um, and I should say too, where I would be the traveler. <laughs> in other words, it's not like a critical 
analysis of travel writing, but experimenting with travel writing um, further myself, in which some of which I there's there's a part of jet lag. Just to let your listeners know, there's a part of jet lag where I talk about being deported for a very minor reason. I don't, I'm not a hero by any means, but being deported and the experience of that. And anyway, I just think there are all these stories of travel that don't get written about. And I'm interested in exploring that further. Um, So I hope jet lag won't be my last book on air travel or travel more generally. I like the idea of a work of travel writing that exposes its repressed underbelly. Exactly. Chris Lee, thank you for being on the New Books Network. I hope you'll come back to us when you've written that book. Yes, no, thank you. It's, It's been great. Thanks so much. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Chris Lee, author of Jet Lag on the New Books Network.